you know, they keep talking about low cost housing. They keep talking about there's this huge uh, gap between demand and supply as far as residential uh, houses are concerned. But I, I don't think what they realize is that, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't have a mortgage market, you won't be able to feed or uh, fulfill that demand. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. In this episode, I spoke with Hamad Rana about Pakistan's real estate sector. Hamad is a dear friend and leads Collier's International Pakistan sales, leasing and investment advisory teams. In his role, he works extensively with multinational corporates, institutional investors, banks, hotel operators and developers on projects across Pakistan. We spoke about where the sector is headed, what is holding it back and what measures the government can take to unlock growth within the context of the coronavirus pandemic. Thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this discussion. Hamad, welcome to Pakistanomy. Hi, Ozer. Thanks. It's a good opportunity to be on with you. So when we look at the real estate sector, you've been working in this for a number of years. From the headlines or from the popular discourse, there's this view that the real estate sector in Pakistan is basically a bunch of crony elites parking their wealth um, and not doing much with it and using it to hide their illegitimate assets. I want you to start by giving us and our listeners an overview of what's going on in the Pakistani real estate sector, where it's growing, where do you think the opportunities are? And why is it that there is this popular misconception? Maybe it's not a misconception uh, of the real estate sector not really contributing much to the economy of the country. Uh, so look, you know, the real estate sector as far as, uh, let's, let's go back a couple of years. So the real estate sector works in cycles in Pakistan. Uh, you know, we had this situation, let's say from 2007 to about 2013, where uh, the economy generally was not doing that well. And as a whole, the real estate sector wasn't really performing that well either. Uh, what we saw from 2013 to, let's say, about 17 was an exponential uh, growth in the real estate sector where prices, uh, at least in the major cities, were more than doubling. Uh, and there was development going on. There were large mega projects that were being announced uh, there were a lot of uh, investors investors and developers from abroad that were also looking into uh, investing into Pakistan, not just uh, investments in terms of land holdings, but investments in terms of actual developments. So that period, there was a lot of uh, stuff going on. But, uh, you know, as you know, I mean, it, it is largely a very undocumented sector. It has been, mm. uh, you know, since for as long as you uh, can remember. Uh, and the government has made efforts to increase the documentation. Now, whether that's come from uh, you know, the IMF dictating that it needs to happen with the IMF program or whether it's uh, something that the government has taken on itself, um, you know, we have seen that things have slowed down. So for example, uh, you know, I, I often give this example to people. So let's say in 2017 or 18, in DHA Karachi, we used, there used to be at least about 80 to 85 transfers a day. Hmm. Uh, and just in the pre-COVID, uh, uh, you know, the, let's say two months ago, uh, it was maybe down to two transactions a day. Wow. So that's how much the situation, that's how much the market had dried up. 
um, and that's largely because of the policies that were put in place in the new budget. Uh, there was a lot of tightening. There was, you know, there's this concept in Pakistan of uh, a market value of a property and then the official value of a property. Hmm. And then it gets further complicated because you know, there's an official value with the provincial government and then there's a different provin- uh, official value with the federal government. So, you know, you're uh, a lot of people, there's a lot of gray areas. People are unsure as to what they should be declaring at. Uh, obviously, everyone wants to take advantage of that. So when it comes to individuals doing transactions, I would say more than 95% of them are probably doing it, uh, you know, in the traditional way, which is declaring one value and then doing uh, actually the transaction taking place at another value. Hmm. But uh, corporates usually declare it. Um, so going forward, we think that, that that's something that will catch on. So, so this discrepancy that you mentioned between market value and in terms of what's declared, um, that basically is a play to avoid or minimize your tax burden. Is that correct? Yeah. So basically, say, for example, in uh, again, I'll give the example of DHA Karachi. So a residential plot in, uh, let's say, in your phase five, six, eight these areas, it ranges anywhere between 100,000 to 150,000 rupees a square yard. So mm. for a thousand square yard plot, you're paying anywhere between 100 to 150 million PKR. Now that's the market value. In terms of the federal value, uh, it's about 40,000 rupees a square yard. So, wow. you know, it's about 40 million, which is less than half. Uh, and in some cases, 30% of uh, the transaction that you're uh, going ahead with. In terms of the transfer costs, now, typically when you add up all the different uh, transfer costs that are applicable, whether they're federal or provincial, it works out to roughly about 8% of the transaction value. So 8% of 40 million as compared to 8% of 100 to 150 million, there's a huge difference. Mm. Yeah, so like about 25% of what it should be. Yeah. And so we'll get back to why there's this discrepancy. And I would love to get your opinion on what you think has gone wrong in terms of making sure that this huge gap does not exist. But before coronavirus um, impacted the economy, not just the Pakistan, but every other country in the world, um, what were some of the green shoots or bright spots in Pakistan's real estate sector that you as someone who works in this sector day in, day out, was really excited about and like viewing this as something that could have a really great impact on Pakistan's economy and its future? So see, historically, real estate and construction and development has been typically uh, down to individuals or high net, uh, in high net worth individuals, let's say. Uh, it's not really mm-hmm. been a structured uh, sector and there are not many corporates, like it's not being done in a corporate way. Uh, over the last year or two, what we saw, which was really exciting, was that you finally had large organizations, corporates, uh, some of them even listed, uh, who started looking at real estate as a proper sector that one can look at as a new business line. Uh, and that's what we thought was really exciting going forward, because we finally thought that there would be some structure that would come into this. Uh, you know, Obviously, there'll be uh, a lot more regulations involved. Uh, there'll be people doing stuff in a proper way rather than the traditional way, which is, you know, taking shortcuts in terms of developments, not really following what the bylaws are, uh, those sort of things. 
So generally, we thought that going forward, things would improve uh, considerably. And I think that's still on the cards. I, I won't say that, uh, you know, it's maybe COVID would have some impact on that in terms of slowing it down. But going forward, mm. I think people do view this uh, sector as one with great potential. And the corporate interest that you mentioned, was this both domestic and international or was it mostly focused on domestic given the external crises or external sector issues Pakistan has faced? So it was, it was both. It was a mix of both. Um, we've had over the past few years uh, or the past two years, especially when the Imran Khan government came on, uh, suddenly we had this interest from a lot of international developers who started looking mm. at Pakistan because there was this whole mantra that, you know, corruption is going to go down things are going to improve uh, and Pakistan is going to be one of the next big economies to look at. Uh, so there were a lot of big names, uh, you know, your typical, I mean, Imar is already here, but your Tamax, your uh, other larger organizations who do construction in the GCC and other uh, regions as well, who started approaching us and started looking at the market in a lot of detail. Um, so there was that aspect of it. And then you had the local companies, uh, like I said, so some of them were high net worth individuals. Uh, others mm. were large business conglomerates who already were in four or five different sectors and were now viewing this as a different uh, opportunity. And you've kind of seen some of that happen as well, right? So uh, if you see what's happened over the past year or two, I mean, Packages Group has come up with one of the largest malls in Lahore. Mm. Uh, Nishat Group, owned by Mia Mansha, came up with a mall and a hotel as well. Now you, ha- uh, in Karachi, you had Lucky Group that came up with what they say is the largest mall in South Asia. Uh, so you you do have these groups going in that direction. And similarly, there are other groups who are exploring these opportunities as well. Have they also, like malls obviously make a lot of sense. Um, one of the things that you mentioned, you know, when the PTI government came in power, and I, again, will come back to some of the arguments around corruption or economy improving. But one of the things they talked about a lot was tourism. Um, and obviously, when you look at the tourist numbers in Pakistan, they were at a small base. But even from that small base, they grew dramatically in the last couple of years or so. Um was there interest both from international and domestic corporates in the tourism sector? And would just love to hear some more details around what that interest was and what's your view in terms of um, two or three key sectors where, you know, once everyone comes out on the right side of coronavirus uh, in Pakistan's real estate sector, uh, what are areas where, you know, there will be a lot of interest and potential for growth? Yeah, so uh, there was a lot of interest in the real, uh, in the hospitality sector locally as well as internationally. So any and every large uh, hospitality uh, brand that you can think of was speaking to us in terms of opportunities in Pakistan, whether that's the likes of Marriott, Accor, uh, you know, Intercon, uh, Swiss International, uh, Hilton, they, they were all looking at opportunities over here. And we've kind of seen some of that translate or mature into actual transactions as well. So uh, I don't know if you've heard, but recently Swiss International opened uh, the Royal Swiss in Lahore, mm-hmm. which is uh, right outside the Lahore airport. So I believe that's about 300, 350 rooms. It's probably the most luxurious uh, hotel in Lahore at the moment. Uh, similarly, you had Nishat come up with their Nishat Suites, which is, you know, about 100, 150 odd rooms next to the hotel. And then they've got a smaller development in the Gulberg area in Lahore as well. 
So what I was saying was that there was another transaction that took place in Islamabad, uh, which was another 270 or 280 rooms uh, right next to the ex- uh, the current Marriott. Uh, and they're in discussion with one or two uh, international brands to bring them as, as an operator. But I just want to highlight over here that, you know, there's, there's kind of a uh, difference in what's expected by international hotel operators as compared to uh, developers over here. So typically, uh, this is a model that all the operators are trying to follow globally, not just specific to Pakistan, but they don't really want to take capital exposure uh, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, actually investing in projects unless it's in a very prime location and they're 100% sure that it's going to do extremely well. They typically want to come in as either operators where they charge a percentage of your annual revenue or they want to come in as a franchise. Um, Whereas developers in Pakistan want them to come in uh, with some sort of equity as well, which is where a lot of the discussions basically fall through. And so why, why is that discrepancy there? Like, why is it that domestic parties where there's a global trend in terms of not wanting to have equity or not wanting to have large capital investments on the domestic side what is driving this need for foreign equity coming into things like hotels uh so there are two ways to or there are two main viewpoints so one is that uh you know again these are properties owned by high, high net worth individuals a lot of the times they've inherited these large properties they have no prior experience when it comes to construction, uh, especially construction of a hotel, which can get pretty complex with uh, all the different facilities and amenities and circulations. So, uh, you know, they a lot of the times they don't have the expertise or the financial uh, backing to uh, do an entire project without any sale proceeds coming in. Because with a hotel, it's basically you don't get any revenue till the hotel is up and running. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them don't have the capability to do that, uh, which is where they ask the hotel operator to come in with some sort of equity. Um, Mm. On the other hand, some who do have the financial backing and can deliver uh, have the opinion that, you know, if they enter into an agreement with uh, the hotel operator and given how fluid the security situation always is in Pakistan, uh, you know, they, they would always be at this risk where the hotel operator would just back up and leave if let's say tomorrow there are a series of bomb blasts and the security situation becomes bad, mm. occupancies go down, daily rates go down, and you know that's the end of the business as far as the hotel is concerned. So they want to kind of uh, hedge their risk uh, with the equi- uh, with the hotel operator coming in with some sort of equity. Interesting. And so, I mean, you mentioned this when the PTI government came in power and you know, there was this expectation, there was interest from outside, corruption will go down. How do you see overall when you look at uh, the the last 18 months or 24 months or so? Obviously, Pakistan has been in an IMF program. Um, the economy has considerably slowed down, but there's at the same time has been a lot of talk on reforms, on boosting construction and using housing to generate sustainable growth in the country. Um, again, as someone who's breathing and living in this sector, um, how would you see the last 18 to 24 months in terms of the rhetoric of what is supposed to be happening in the market and what you've actually seen happen on the ground uh, as developments go? So see, there's a lot of talk going on. There's a lot of uh, 
papers and white papers and everything that are being put up but to be honest there's not much really happening on the ground at the moment uh and you know they keep talking about low cost housing they keep talking about there's this huge uh gap between demand and supply as far as residential uh houses are concerned but i i don't think what they realize is that you know at the end of the day if you don't have a mortgage market you won't be able to feed or uh fulfill that demand uh currently interest rates in pakistan are about 11 to 12% banks don't really give mortgage uh to you know especially not your target market for your low cost housing schemes so they need to come up with some sort of mechanism where they can actually be able to fill that gap um uh, what's happening at the moment is is that anyone and everyone who has let's say a 2000 square yard plot or above is basically wanting to make a high rise apartment building and at the end of the day all of them are classifying it as uh a grade or luxury apartments where you're looking at you know a three bedroom apartment of anywhere between 60 to 100 million pkr uh now at these prices unless you're giving some sort of mortgage uh there's a very small part of society that can actually afford these house, uh, these apartments and that part of society prime usually already has their own houses that they live in so they end up serving more as an investment and then they end up giving it on rent uh rental yields are at about 1 1.5% which is next to nothing uh, hmm. so you know it it's a vicious cycle that's going on at the moment so rental yields are 1 to 1.5% from a global perspective what is the average in just so that the listeners have a sense of you know comparing pakistan to other comparable emerging markets um what's it the difference slight- in yields it it varies slightly but let's say asia pacific which usually pakistan is uh, compared to it's about 4 to 5% for residential hmm. okay that's interesting and so mortgages i mean obviously the high discount rate is a big driver of that and you know I I would say even if you fix that the fact that luxury apartments and high rises are going up where the cost of construction even is really high that's not feasible for someone from a middle class or lower middle class background so from your perspective like what are some of the things that could have been done uh to promote this sector more than going beyond white papers or just talking about how to fix it like obviously lowering the rate is something that needs to be looked at and businesses have been uh talking about this the state bank has cut rates in the last couple of weeks due to the crisis at hand um but the interest rate environment is again a function of pakistan's overall economic stability so beyond that um where do you think things have fallen short uh, as far as policy around the real estate and particularly the housing sector goes so see what's happening at the moment is uh well not at the moment but it's not something that i believe can be fixed overnight um so it basically starts with pakistan as a country we we don't really produce anything everything hmm. in terms of our construction uh, most of our materials or either even though we're making we might be making finished products but the raw material for those uh, products is coming from abroad as well so just in the past year you've had you know the dollar going from 120 to what it's 167 today mm-hmm. um and just last week it was 157 and it's gone up about 5 to 7%. So this has a direct impact on what the construction costs look like. Uh according to our estimates um you know if let's say you're talking about apartments uh typically high end apartments would cost you about 
eight to ten thousand rupees a square foot uh and if you go towards the lower end it would be about three thousand rupees a square foot and 50 percent of that cost is typically impacted by the dollar so when you have the dollar going wow. up by 40 percent uh just in a matter of a year your costs are going to exponentially increase uh so till we don't start producing locally uh, you know, you're you're not really going to be able to keep these costs down. You you don't have mortgages. Uh, your your economy is not growing at that pace where people or the demand uh, is there. So uh, I I really don't see this situation improving. So in a way, what you're saying is that you know you look at you cannot look at the construction of the real estate or the housing sector in isolation to the larger economy, which is primarily import dependent. And that's been the real catch, right? That every time you reduce interest rates and start growing again, at a, not even at a rapid pace, you approach 4% for an half percent and all of a sudden um, the reserves start coming down. The current account deficit does not look great. Um, and so whatever growth there is, all of a sudden you have to pull the handbrake again because it can't be sustained. And the housing sector, again, on paper might look really attractive. But if you if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that if you start generating too much growth in that, that has a direct link with the import sector. And as long as Pakistan's import export balance stays out of whack, um, that sector, again, will get negatively impacted much like the rest of the economy, uh, given given its reliance on imports. Is that a fair assumption, a fair yeah, summary? See, think about it this way. When you make a building, your elevators are imported. Your All your MEPs, which is your mechanical, electrical, plumbing, everything is imported. Your tiles are typically either coming from China, Spain, or Italy. Uh, you know, your paint is probably one of the only things that is being done. Low. Paint, uh, hmm. cement, and steel, but their raw materials are being imported to some extent. So there's there's a lot of different things that uh, go into a construction site. There are a lot of different. I think the government at times has said it's hundred uh, different industries that uh, yeah. you know kind of feed into the construction industry. So there there is a lot at work over here. But till we don't start producing, I won't say all of it, but to a large extent some of it, then uh, you know these costs aren't really going to come down, and they're going to have an impact, like you said. Uh, imports are going to go up, current account deficit situation is going to get worse. Yeah, and I would add, like, you don't have to make everything or even not, you can have the status quo, let's say, in terms of the import, export or import versus domestic production components in a high rise or in any construction sector. Um, But you can have exports of other components or other things that balance the dollar amount, right? So it can be either or. But my question to you was from your you know, vantage point, do you see that recognition in the in the government or in the policy circles that this is a larger, more systemic problem that needs to be tackled? Because we've heard, again, from a mainstream discourse perspective or the rhetoric, you hear a lot about import substitution. Razak Daud talks about it every once in a while. Um, but I at least haven't seen anything tangible happen and was just curious to hear your thoughts in terms of um, is there any recognition that that's what is at the heart of the economic issues facing Pakistan? No, to be honest, at the moment, I really don't think there is. Uh, I don't think the government is giving any sort of incentives for people to put up local industries either. Uh, energy prices are continuing to increase. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I really don't see it happening. Hmm. 
So the other thing, like switching gears a bit, um, you talked about the discrepancy in terms of the market value and the declared value in assets in the real estate sector. And Pakistan does have a massive problem where wealth is parked in plots and not used for productive purposes. At the same time, you've had successive governments, whether it was the Musharraf government, People's Party, Nawaz League, and now PTI. Those are the four I've seen in my lifetime. Um, that have offered an amnesty of sorts uh, to fix this issue once and for all, but it doesn't really work for various reasons. Um, in your view, like why are plots so attractive in Pakistan? Why is it that 85 transactions occur in DHA Karachi? And what is it? How? What's the end game here? How does the government make sure that this discrepancy goes away once and for all? And all this wealth that's parked away um, is used for more productive purposes uh, for the economic betterment of Pakistan. So I think uh, let me break up that question into two parts. So there's that one aspect where uh, you know why are plots so attractive? Historically, what's happened is is uh, or not even historically over the last five years, uh, the plot prices have increased, like I said, on an average of about eleven to fifteen percent a year. But there have been spikes where literally prices have, uh, you know, doubled over two years as well. So because of that reason, a lot of these uh, plots are more attractive in terms of investments uh, for people who have undeclared wealth, where you only need to declare, let's say, 25% of the transaction value uh, and the rest is undocumented. So that wealth can't be put in banks because uh, it'll get documented the minute you do. So it needs to be parked somewhere. That was one of the reasons why it, it was really attractive. Uh, what I will give the government credit for, though, is that in this previous budget, uh, they have tried to tackle that uh, issue to some extent. So what happened was that previously the capital gain tax was applicable on properties uh, for the first three years. And after three years, it was not applicable, whether it was a plot or a building or a, uh, a house. With the most recent budget, what they did was that uh, they increased the capital gain tenure. So what they said was that, you know, for uh, plots, in order to promote construction on those plots and to uh, discourage people holding them, uh, they increased the capital gain period to eight years. Whereas uh, they said, if mm. you construct and then sell, then that capital gain period would be down to four. So they gave that incentive for people to start construction. Uh, and to a large extent, I think it has helped in uh, stopping people from investing in plots and just holding on to them. And so what else do you think can be done here beyond the increase in the capital gains period to to do more of the same, right? Encourage people not to hold on to plots, not have just plot transfers and the speculative drives in, in the real estate sector for plots and actually do more in terms of construction and building stuff on top of this asset. Well, there has been talk time and again of a wealth tax being imposed. Uh, I think they have it in some countries. Uh, I, I'm not too familiar with which countries have it currently or not. Uh, but I think that is something that can be done in Pakistan just to discourage uh, people holding on to plots. Or if they do hold on to it, then you know there should be a penalty to it. Uh, I think that's one thing that uh, the government can introduce. The other is obviously that you close that gap between the official and the market value. Uh, and we have seen the government attempt to do that every year. So the gap is closing down. And uh, let's say, for example, this year, if the current market stays the way it is, which is pretty stagnant for the last year or so, 
and the official rate increases, then the gap would further reduce. So eventually, I think the idea would be over the next couple of years, you phase in that uh, escalation in terms of the official rate, and then you make it unattractive for people to park wealth uh, as far as properties are concerned. Hmm. No, that's interesting. Um, I think overall, like, just curious to hear again in terms of what impact does corruption have in, in this sector? Obviously, if you're parking undocumented wealth, one would assume that that has a big uh, corruption is, is there in the sector in terms of what is transferred, how it's documented, etc. Um, but there has been, again, talk of corruption coming down. If I remember correctly, Sindh was trying to digitize its uh, property uh, registration and disclosure uh, processes um, to ease some of this issue. Um, and other provincial governments are going in a similar direction. And there, again, overall, whether you look at what the FBR is saying and what others are saying, they look at digital tools and IT as a means to reduce or force the reduction of corruption, whether it's through machine learning or AI. And um, just curious to hear where do you see, particularly in, in, in the real estate sector, the role of corruption? And is that something that, again, has substantially come down in the last few years or it continues to be a major impediment to reforming, reforming this industry? Um, I think corruption has uh, slowed down. I won't say it's come to an end. Uh, I don't think any country can say that there's no corruption. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely slowed down. But I don't know whether that's because the government has, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what measures the government has taken to do that. But there is this general sense that because you have, uh, you know, the National Accountability Bureau, NAB, go around and question anything and everything that the government is doing or previous governments have done. Generally, in the bureaucracy, there's not really uh, a push to get stuff done. So it's kind of like a cash 22. The bureaucracy isn't really doing their job. And because of mm. that, there are not any new cases of corruption coming up. But at the same time, there's not nothing's going on as either. So then approvals are, you know, at times taking more than six months to come through. Uh, projects are stalling because of that. People are just not willing to sign off on anything. And then similarly, you've had cases recently where, uh, you know, with this whole Beria Town case that happened uh, regarding this Icon Tower where we saw a previous amenity plot was converted to a commercial uh, commercial plot for construction. Uh, you know, cases like those, I think those sort of things will definitely uh, slow down. And uh, you've, again, you've got this Supreme Court or the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court that's very actively looking into the master planning of your major cities, uh, the con conversion of residential uh, plots to commercial. So these sort of things, I think it's a mixture of all this stuff, which has kind of impacted uh, the way things have been happening previously. Yeah, speaking of the Supreme Court and the Chief Justice, like I remember the orders were to restore Karachi back to its 40-year old master plan and that started a anti-encroachment drive around Empress Market and other areas and I I at least found it quite laughable that you know someone as in, in a position of authority like the Chief Justice saying go back to 40 years ago where Karachi in terms of even its demographics was a totally different place. Um, how, what were your reactions when stories like this came out and you know there was this view that Karachi needs to go back for to its 40 year old master plan? I mean, I think it was the same like anyone else. 
fact. I mean, you have uh, <laughs> one of the largest cities in the world and one of the most densely populated cities where you're not really taking into account how much population growth or density has taken place since the last 40 years. But you've made this sweeping statement that the master plan from 40 years ago needs to be reinstated. So, or not even 40, uh, you know, it's what, 50 years or something. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that to me was uh, very surprising, uh, to say the least. Um, but I do think that generally there should be uh, more check and balance in terms of commercialization of properties. Uh, what we saw over the past five years was, uh, you know, with the previous KDA, uh, KDA or whatever regulatory authority, there were a number of cases where uh, residential or amenity plots were being commercialized, which, you know, uh, that that's something I'm not really for. For turning a park into a residential or a retail plaza is not something that should be happening. Uh, I don't think we have enough spaces in Karachi to begin with. So converting the few that we do have, uh, you know, that's something that, yeah, maybe the Supreme Court did need to look at. Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, especially right now, right, with everyone's lockdown and due to coronavirus, I think having more open spaces for the public to go out and having some sort of regimen, like I live in DC and we're under lockdown too, but at the very least, at certain points in day, the city does allow you, there's no curfew of sorts, but you can go out to the park and walk around as long as you're like distance from each other. But I agree, if a city does not have amenity plots and parks and safeguards those open spaces, then when you're under a curfew or a lockdown, such as what's going on right now all over the world, you can't really go out because guess what? Everyone's going to be cramped onto a sidewalk, which also don't exist in, in Karachi, so you can't really walk anywhere. Um, and I agree, like that sort of corruption, it is essentially corruption, and that should be looked at and clamped down upon because it doesn't benefit except those who have the money to own that property and build something on top of it and it doesn't uh help the city uh blossom and grow as it should um overall i i mean from looking forward in terms of what's going to happen we can talk about real estate or just the general economy would love your take on this as well like how do you see coronavirus changing pakistan's economy and i know it's a fluid situation and a lot still is unknown um, but what are some of your early thoughts in terms of how does this change Pakistan's economy moving forward? So I think it's looking very bleak at the moment. Uh, we have, you know, everything's basically come to a standstill. Uh, like I said, the construction industry feeds into a hundred different industries. So uh, when the construction industry stops, unemployment goes up. Uh, there, we're already hearing of layoffs. So there will be a, a follow-on effect of that. Uh, if the situation continues for a while, to be honest, I don't think any country in the world will be able to uh, say that, you know, going forward, things will look great. Uh, I think it's going to be bleak all around. We're talking already, we've seen reports published by a number of uh, renowned uh, financial firms or consultancy firms, such as McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, they're all talking about a global recession. So uh, let's hope that the situation improves. Uh, globally, because uh, I think it's going to affect all of us if it doesn't. Uh, and in, if it does improve, I think the situation will get much better in Pakistan in terms of construction. I think there is a lot of interest at the moment uh, across various asset classes, uh, the traditional asset classes being, you know, the office, retail, 
uh, hotel and residential sectors, and now some upcoming asset classes, uh, which people have started looking at, such as logistics as well. So all around, I think there will be some uh, growth in those sectors. Yeah, I think logistics and supply chain will be the winner around the world, especially if you're anywhere, shape or form involved with e-commerce, right? Because that has been the saving grace, whether you're looking at markets like India or the United States or parts of Europe and East Asia. If you have a good e-commerce and logistics supply chain sector, um, then that has been able to at least maintain demand for the middle and upper middle classes to for essential items and keep them home while delivering products. And I think this is an opportunity for Pakistan to both from a real estate investment perspective, but from a broader logistics improvement perspective, because um, when you have a crisis like this and you have good road connectivity, you have a good cold storage supply chain uh, mechanism and something that's digitized where tracking and traceability is easy, um, then you can deal with a crisis like this much, much better than other countries that don't have it. So I agree with you that that's going to happen. But overall, like from your perspective, there's been a lot of uh, talk over the last couple of weeks, continues to this day in parts of mainstream media around whether there should be a lockdown, should it have been a lockdown, was it a curfew, etc. You were you're in Karachi, you're, you lived through that experience and saw that debate happen. What was your view as a citizen um, in terms of what the government, whether it was a Sindh government or the PTI government or other governments in other provinces uh, should have done or did do uh, to deal with this crisis proactively? How are you seeing that debate evolve from your perspective? So I think the Sindh government actually did really well. We were probably the first ones in Sindh uh, to close down. Uh, it wasn't really a curfew initially and a not a complete lockdown. Uh, but a lot of companies, because Karachi being the economic hub of the country, uh, we have a lot of multinationals and large local corporates over here. So a lot of companies started encouraging working from home. Uh, you know, transport generally uh, was, or public transport generally was not, uh, encouraged. We had ride-hailing apps such as uh, Swivel, Airlift, Kareem, uh, who basically stopped operations as well. Um, and this is all prior to when the federal government uh, started locking down in the federal capital. Um, so generally, I think they've dealt with the situation well. Uh, overall, you know, just at a from a larger picture perspective, uh, I don't know in terms of you know, the corona situation in Pakistan, like in terms of the number of tests that are being done and the number of deaths that are being reported and whatnot, uh, how accurate they would be. But I think they've done whatever they can in order to at least slow down the spread. Um, so yeah, I would I would give uh, top grades to the P uh, PPP government for doing what they did. Which hearing from Hamad Rana is quite interesting, given that I've known you for years. And I think even I would say the same, like we do live in strange times where people are commending the People's Party government um, for doing a great job, particularly in a crisis response situation, because we've lived through uh, being citizens of Karachi, lived through some crises where they did not do a good job. So I think that that just shows that there is a new decade and a new strange world that we're living in right now. Um, Look, you need to give credit where it's due, right? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> no, I was just going to add, like, coming back to your initial question, like, you know, how uh, how has the situation affected the sector or how do we see it affecting uh, the sector going forward? I mean, just in the past two or three weeks, we've uh, a lot of the companies or the clients that we deal with, and these are 
some large multinationals uh, and local groups, they're all talking to us about what did we can do to help them with savings, cost reductions. Uh, so those discussions have already started. Uh, you know, people who had plans of maybe opening up a new head office or expanding their office space, uh, those plans have come to a standstill. Uh, the situation is just such where there's not really a decision being made either way because people aren't sure how long the situation will continue. So at the moment for everyone, it's wait and see, but at the same time, start putting in measures where if the situation gets worse, then we need to cut back. Mm-hmm. And I think that's my concern, especially in an economy like Pakistan, is that especially when you look at construction or other labor intensive sectors, that that wait and see approach, uh, which it means that if you have a return to normalcy and the, the virus goes away or is controlled for the time being, um, the wait and see approach means that you will still have excess labor, uh, particularly the daily wage labor class that will not find work as much as they would want coming out of a crisis where they've been home for a month or not making any money for more than a month. Um, and I think that really is the concerning point. And I, I agree from your point that governments, whether it is in government, PTI government at the federal level, the stimulus that they've announced through the SRS program and trying to get cash to those who need it is the most that they could have done. And um, it's there probably more will be needed as the weeks go by. But this is the reality of the situation. And I fear that the daily wage earner is the one hardest hit and will probably continue to be hard hit by this even after the virus goes away. I don't know if you have a different perspective on that, but I'm just in my mind trying to think about what can the government do to boost growth in sectors that can absorb that excess labor once we come out of this crisis. So I do know what uh, there are rumors uh, going around that later today, the prime minister will be holding a press conference where they'll be announcing uh, some sort of package for the construction industry. And I think they'll put it under one of those industries where they exempt it from uh, a lockdown uh, in order to address that issue in terms of, you know, labor being unemployed. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest, because at the same time, I mean, their view is that you're not really, labor is not really, uh, they're not really getting together in large numbers, whereas I'm of the opinion that it's probably one of those cases where they are, because at a Mm. time, you know, on a large site, you have several hundreds of workers at a time. So, um, I don't know, let's see what they announce. And then maybe we can have a follow up after that or something. Yeah, and today being April 3rd. So I, I've heard the same that, you know, um, the, the government is considering that and I have the same fear as you do. Like, you know, if you're going to do that, then you better have really strict security and safety protocols at that construction site that's active where you know social distancing measures are put in place where the labor is given masks and other equipment that protects them and others from spreading that virus because i agree that at a site you have hundreds of people and they probably lunch or breakfast it together and if you're going to have that then they're going to go home or wherever they live and you will have clusters emerge very quickly um as a result of that so i agree you have to it's a fine balance but um at the same time you know it is a tricky situation because you need to keep employing these people um hamad one of the things before we wrap things up um 
people raise often and it real estate is a harder sector to follow uh, in Pakistan um, particularly so we're just curious if for listeners who want to better understand this sector or just follow it along uh, what are some of the ways in which you at least follow this sector and keep an eye on what's going on and how can the average person who has an interest in this sector follow developments in this sector and and keep abreast of the changes and go beyond sort of the mainstream uh, discourse in terms of wealth being parked in that sector and not much happening? Uh, there are a couple of different avenues other than the mainstream media. Uh, you have, you know, websites such as TheMean.com. Uh, I believe there's another one by name of Grana.com as well. Uh, in addition to that, we do our own research where, uh, you know, our research teams are on the ground. We're going out, we're speaking to different stakeholders. Uh, and every quarter or so, we do publish a newsletter uh, where we cover a different uh, aspect of the market or a different uh, asset loss, just to give an idea as to what's going on over the past couple of months or how we see things going forward. Unfortunately, that's the only uh, stuff we do have for someone to follow. Uh, like I said at the start of this discussion, the, it's really not a structured sector in Pakistan. So you'll only get little snippets here and there. Yeah, and we'll include uh, some of the links. Yeah, we'll include some of the links to your newsletters in our podcast summaries so for listeners to click and subscribe to or at least read some of the stuff you've put out there. Um, final question, if you were the real estate or construction advisor uh, to the government, what would be three things that you would tell them in a post-corona world to unlock the potential of the real estate or construction sector in the country? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> Getting it down to just three factors would be a tough or you can uh, <laughs> you can give more as as many as you want. Let's go for that. Well, I would start with uh, I would definitely start with the financing part because all over the world construction is uh, you know it's financed by I won't say the government but financial institutions. So you need to encourage that. We need to come up. The government needs to look at how they can uh, do that. I think there's a huge uh, potential to unlock uh, if they do manage to get or wrap their heads around it. That's one. Uh, second, what I would do was, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk with, uh, especially when this whole current account deficit situation was still new uh, uh, during the start of this current government's tenure, there was a lot of talk of domestic production. Uh, and I made this point earlier as well. I think this is something that we definitely need to look into. Uh, potentially look at JVs with, uh, you know, larger manufacturers abroad who set up sites over here. So that does that. Uh, transfer of knowledge and technical know-how as well. Uh, we need to start producing locally. If we keep uh, you know, importing all our goods, costs are just going to go up. Prices are going to go up. It, it has a knock-on effect on everything. So uh, I think these two would be the two major things that I would uh, definitely advise the government to look at. Third, what I would say is that when they, uh, you know, as they're looking to increase the cost of uh, or the official value of properties, I think they need to reevaluate the transfer costs associated with these transactions as well. Uh, currently, you know, a when a transaction takes place, you're paying anywhere between 8 to 10% of the transaction value, whereas in other countries, it's uh, less than 5% as well. So on one mm. hand, if you're, you know, if countries uh, or sorry, if transactions are trying to increase the tax value, you need to kind of 
you know, go in the right direction with the tax rate as well. Yeah, the, the, the last one is a very interesting point, right? Because uh, it also then plays into liquidity in the market and how much cash or how, how do you then make those payments that are already high compared to average around the world, um, particularly at a time when you are trying to facilitate growth and not, not keep it low. Um, so, Hamad, thank you for your time. This was a great discussion. And again, the real estate sector beyond what we hear in the mainstream is one that is very, very hard to understand. So really appreciate you taking out the time and going deep into explaining some of the nuances of the sector and what's going on there. And I hope you stay safe and sane and that the family's doing all right. And, you know, hopefully we'll come out of this coronavirus situation uh, sooner rather than later and wish you all the best. Thanks, Uzar. Hope you're keeping safe in DC as well and try and stay indoors. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Pakistanomy. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe to it using your favorite podcast app and do share it with your friends and family, as well as on your social media. Hope you tune in next time.